a lot of the challenge of, I, I think, getting to a better place are the near-term constraints that we put on ourselves. So this book is really sort of asking the question, let's look out 20 years, 25 years, put away the day-to-day constraints and ask ourselves, given these building blocks that we have, what kind of world do we want to build? Welcome to Insert Human. I'm Chris Colbert. As the former managing director of the Harvard Innovation Lab, I realized many things. And one of the things I realized is that the pace of technology-driven change is faster, far faster, than most organizations and most people's ability to change. That gap equals risk, vulnerability, and eventually long-term viability. And it's a particularly troubling gap in the three sectors that underpin modern society, banking, education, and healthcare. It's the biggest existential threat they have, and by extension, we have. Closing the gap requires transformation, and transformation requires a much better understanding of ourselves, because at the end of the day, all transformation is human transformation. That's why I created Insert Human, a weekly conversation with brilliant people about better understanding us, and in doing so, shrinking the gap and increasing the chances of a better outcome for all. Before we dive in today's episode, an offer to all the listeners who are leading some sort of transformation effort. I've learned that the key to a successful transformation, organizations big or small, begins with adopting seven critical habits. And while most of the leaders I've met have nailed some, rarely have I seen any honed to an innate, really effective level. To find out how you're doing with the seven habits, you can get my guide the seven habits of highly transformative leaders at chriscolbert.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all the Insert Human listeners around the world. Thank you once again for joining me and my guest today. Chunka Moy is actually uh, connected through my father-in-law, believe it or not. The quick story is I'm sitting in my father-in-law's living room a couple months ago, talking about my work and talking about people who I admire in the world who are doing interesting things and making interesting observations about the future and about innovation. And I brought up Chunka and Bob Gilbert, my father-in-law says, I know him. (laughs) And lo and behold, we are connected and Chunka is kind enough to be on the show uh, with me today. So he was the chief innovation officer and managing partner of Diamond Management and Technology Consultants, which is where you and Bob got to know each other, I believe. Is that right? right? Yes. That became part of PwC, which I'm sure everybody knows. And more recently, he has established himself as a futurist and innovation advisor who helps organizations design and stress test innovation strategies focusing at making the world a much better place, which I love that declaration. And I will say, having been at the Harvard Innovation Lab for four years, watching innovators of every shape and size fail, uh, designing and stress testing innovation strategies is a critical function, whether you're a small organization, a big organization, a startup, or anything in between. So in addition to his advising, Chunka speaks around the world about the future, about innovation, about all these things. And he's the best-selling author of five books, which is remarkable, on innovation and leadership, including most recently, A Brief History of a Perfect Future, Inventing the World We Can Proudly Leave Our Kids by 2050. It's a book he co-wrote with Paul Carroll and Tim Andrews. So I just want to start with, I love 
the title. <laughs> I love the juxtaposition of brief history and perfect future. And I love the proudly leave our kids part. But let's start with brief history, perfect future. Sounds like a contradiction. What's going on there? Sure. Well, first, Chris, thank you for having me on your brilliant podcast. I appreciate it. And I will put in a word that if you're looking for interesting people who write about interesting things about the future uh, and who know more people than I do, you should spend more time talking to your father-in-law, right? Because Bob, I will. he's brilliant. He knows he's crossed paths with so many great inventors and technologists over his years. And of course, as you and I both know, he has a, uh, a lovely and scathing book, a piece of fiction about the sort of the corporate environment, which uh, everybody out there should search down. Which is at. called plausible deniability. Plausible so if you're deniability. if you're up for a, a little scathing uh, source of fiction, uh, read the book. Yes. So a brief history of a perfect future. So where's the title come from, and why a brief history of the future? I'll give you the medium uh, length story on that. So Winston Churchill said, "History will be kind to me, for I intend to write it." And uh, you can read that a number of different ways. One was that Churchill was this great historian who captured the past and, of course, wrote himself, wrote about himself nicely. But I think I tend to think about it in a slightly different way, and this is how we used it in the book. Churchill also created history. He shaped history. He shaped history and then wrote about it. And in a way, shaping it and then writing about it beforehand helps you crystallize and understand what you want to aim for. And that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to use the power of narrative in a brief way to crystallize the future so that it helps us collectively work towards that future. And so one of my expressions, it's not particularly brilliant, but it is an expression, is documentation is commitment. That just simply the sheer act of writing a narrative informs or has a major impact on whether that narrative can come to pass or not. Absolutely. And the great thing about narrative is that really it touches, touches us as humans in the way that we communicate, in the way that we build shared bonds and build consensus. Because, you know, deep down, we're still like the caveman around the fire. We tell stories to one another. And in the telling of those stories, we build that shared story together. And uh, that's what we tried to do in this book, to sort of start telling that story about the future that we could all work towards and want and hopefully build momentum around those just an aside to that insight is another thing I've said in you know the different talks that I've done and groups I've met with is history is the universal medium. Or not history, storytelling is the universal yeah. medium. History is, I mean, the word story is in there, you know, music. I mean, virtually every, every form of communication we have created, social media is storytelling. And to me, the sort of funny, I don't know if it's an ir irony, but there's a funny truth in that, which is as much as that may be true, I don't know that that many of us acknowledge that and or understand the importance of getting good at that. Right. Yes. Like you think about investor pitches, you know, in the innovation space, so much of it is how you tell the story of your idea. Yes, the, the spreadsheets matter, but I think you'd agree that the investors want to be engaged with a story, the story of the problem, a story of the solution. And yet we sort of jump right over the ability to become good at storytelling and just sort of presume we can do it and we can't. Right. It's, it's our nature. Now, I will caution us all that it's our nature, but it's also a flaw, right? Because we can be riveted by a story 
And unless we probe deeper to the evidence behind that story, we can be taken for a ride. We can be pulled towards a compelling story that, that is not necessarily a good thing. So in the book, we not only tell the story, but we present the science. We present the science that those aggressive, but yet pragmatic possible futures real. So I think if we just stick with storytelling, then we're essentially sticking with fabrication. Right. right? But, but those stories right. have to be really grounded. Yeah. And we should look at both as a critical need and skill we develop as innovators, you know, as leaders, but also we should be cautious that it's also a flaw that we have and we have to work to yeah. manage. Yeah, a little bit of both. So as you contemplated the book, did you start with the outcome, aka the perfect future? Or did you like how I'm just curious sort of how you began to structure the story or the narrative that you and the others were going to write together? Well, the uh, the book really builds on decades of work that Paul, Tim, and I have done in terms of understanding emerging technologies and the exponential nature of, of their rise. And I guess as a confession, I mean, my life has been spent working, as you said, with large organizations on their business strategies, taking advantage of those of emerging technologies. And this book is really a shift, right? Because rather than sort of the, the focus of inspection being corporate strategy, we said, okay, those same technologies, what do they mean for society? Right. Rather than the goal being, you know, how do we make this company better? The goal is, how do we make this world better? And I don't think those are necessarily in contradiction. No, I don't either. I don't either. But they could be. They're not necessarily in alignment either. But if we put the right frame of reference on it, then we can have our cake and eat it too. So how did you begin to parse apart, a, call it a better, a better future for the world or a better outcome that our kids will benefit from? Like, how, Because it's a... You know, at a corporate level, it's it's a slightly easier thing to think about intentions and outcomes and measures and KPIs. And but when you go to a global level of what is better, like I'm just really curious to know how you guys wrestle that one to the ground. Well, I think it's actually in some ways easier if you go back to the humanity level and say what is better. Sometimes it's easier to put away the constraints of this quarter's, you know, P&L and next quarter's P&L and next quarter's P&L and be able to say, hey, from this vantage point, what, do we, what would it be ridiculous not to have in terms of how we apply the fruits of our human ingenuity, the, the technology that we build? And a lot of the challenge of, I, I think, getting to a better place are the near-term constraints that we put on ourselves. So this book is really sort of asking the question, let's look out. 20 years, 25 years, put away the day-to-day -day constraints and ask ourselves, given these building blocks that we have, what kind of world do we want to build? So we really, we broke the book down into three parts. What are the building blocks? And we focus on technology, the exponential rise in technology. But the second part is what are the buildings? Because the building blocks are not the buildings. You know, what we can build with the, these powerful technologies ranges all the way from the pathetic to the perfect. Right. So what are the building blocks that we want to build? And then the third part of the book deals with the builders. You know, what how do people need to interact at an individual level, at a corporate level, at a governmental level in order to create those more perfect futures? And is part of that an examination, I assume in the building part, the second part, like what are the buildings was a hard look at the, what I call the core systems that underpin modern society, you know, education, the healthcare, the finance system, because it strikes me as I do my work trying to figure out how to help the world be a better place, that those core systems are so calcified <laughs> and sclerotic and embedded that until we figure out how to sort of break them free 
kind of almost everything else is, and I think the governing system is another question in there. I, I don't want to, I don't want to put sort of force you down a path. You don't want to go down, but when you talk about the buildings, what yeah. were you guys, what are you guys talking about? Well, we actually went down the opposite path that you just described because we didn't look at the core systems because the core systems absent a better desired outcome will be what they are. Right. Uh, instead we said, let's forget about the core systems for now. Let's ask ourselves the question of given the sort of, dimensions of complexity, dimensions of problems that we have. And we started really, really large problems. What kind of world do we want to build in order to address those problems? So in 25 years, we know that over the course of the next 25 years that uh, we have this existential issue around climate, right? As we've seen, you know, recently in Washington and, and in the world, making change on climate policy is really hard. But what do we want to get to, right? It would be crazy. It would be ridiculous that if by 2050, we did not adapt as we needed to, to the worst potential damage of climate change, to mitigate those changes and change towards a more, a better strategy around, around uh, carbon emissions. So if we peg the goal at 2050 at net zero emissions, mm -hmm. then we can work backwards and understand more deeply what the parts of the solution are, but we have to understand what the goal is. Yeah. Started from today and kept on doing what we were doing, we'll never get to that goal. So in in climate, in healthcare, in energy, in transportation, we took that approach. What would be crazy not to have in terms of solution by 2050? And now how do we work back from that? And then we then we try to say, given that goal, how do we look at, as you described, the core systems and core changes those systems have to make towards that end goal? So those are the buildings uh, around those that. are the building. Yeah. Right? Those are the buildings. And then what did the builders have to do to get there? And how much of the builder function, this is like a loaded question, how much of the builder function is behavioral and involves incentives and motivations? Because <laughs> that, se that seems to me to be the sticking point on so many of the issues we have, not just globally, but particularly in the US, the incentives are misaligned with the outcomes that we need, not even that we seek, but that we need. And so is that, you agree with that? Or how do you guys think about sort of the builders part and, and motivating them to build? It's, it's absolutely critical. I mean, it's one part of a big, hairy, complex problem. But if we get the incentives wrong, and oftentimes when we get the incentives wrong is when we get the time frame of focus wrong. So if we're saying that we want to get something done by, in, by 2050, we have to understand how those long-term incentives migrate back into the day-to-day -day incentives of, of the players. But so, yes, I agree. We have, we have to get that right. And do you have a point of view on that one? Again, you know, everything that you, everything that you, you work on, I think is near and dear to my brain. And, you know, I think you're much brighter than I am. And so I get stuck on certain things, certain pieces of this thing. So the one thing I get stuck on is what you just said, the we part, you know, we, we need to sort of approach it this way. As I look at the world today and the way it's configured and the governing bodies from, you know, the world, the UN and the World Trade you know, Organization to the federal government to, you know, Mayor Wu here in Boston, who's the we that will marshal the energy and the efforts to align and coalesce to get you know, I think about, well, think about COVID and the world, the global response to COVID was so fragmented that it wasn't a global response. You know, it was a response of 161 countries. So as you guys thought about the call, it, 
you know, next level down implementation, how do you bring the builders together in a way that there's economies of scale and focus on how, you know, just any, any thoughts? Well, that's, that's this, you know, $64 billion question as it were. And I think the answer is going to be kind of messy because the whole process of change is messy and there is no collective we, there's lots of collections of we's. Right, hopefully guided by the right long-term vision. So in the question of climate, for example, we can say we need to get to net zero by 2050, but there's no one act that will do that. Right? It, will, it will take major changes in energy, major changes in transportation, major changes in terms of what we consume and how we consume them, tax policy, regulatory policy, all these different things. And each one of those segments, we think about them from an industry standpoint or geopolitical standpoint, has to find its goal within that and has, has to find the right incentives, not only long-term, but short-term, what they do today. But I'll give you a very specific example of that. Transportation, specifically light-duty vehicles, cars, uh, uh, small trucks, you know, uh, vans, buses, it comprises only 8% of total global emissions. 8%, even though we think of this massive, massive industry. In order for us to get to the overall climate goal of zero emissions by 2050, we somehow have to reduce that 8%. We still love for 92%, but we still have to deal with that 8%. So all the players within that 8% need to f- somehow get us down to zero. It sounds completely daunting, but it I does. think it, it sounds does. completely daunting. But one of the things we all need, need, we need to do within that is to get rid of all those gas guzzling engines, which throw out carbon emissions. And I think there's a collective realization that one way of doing that, perhaps the only way of doing that, is moving to EVs, electric vehicles for now, and the hope that they're on this accelerating curve towards lower emissions, or we invent better, you know, zero emission cars and trucks, hydrogen, whatever, you know, whatever it is. All that to deal with 8%. But actually, that's possible. And we're starting to see this massive movement along to all these different sectors. So if you try to buy an electric vehicle today, you can't. Because no, I'm actually, I'm actually trying to buy an electric vehicle today and I can't find it. Yeah, you're probably waiting 12 to 18 months at least, uh, right. you know, um, because the demand is so high, right? So that is because I'm guessing on your part and overall, people are sort of saying, consumers are saying, okay, I buy it. I accept climate change. I have to buy a new car. I'm going to buy an EV, right? And now the industry is racing to catch up. Yeah, although let me insert something because I read something a couple of days ago about the EV, the the spike in EV demand, and that some I don't I wouldn't call it research, but call it commentary suggested that the spike in EV demand is a function of the price of gas. It's not a function of global concern. It's a function of it's costing me so much money to fill my tank. It's time for me to buy an electric vehicle, and this is where I get sort of hung up on. If the issues we face are global, then we have to begin to contemplate personal sacrifice to benefit the whole, not personal sacrifice to benefit me. And so I had a a guest on a couple of weeks ago, Spencer Glendon, who has a climate activist organization called Probable Futures. And we got into this whole thing of like, how do you begin to motivate? It's kind of tragedy of the common stuff. How do you begin to motivate the whole to care about the whole? Yeah. Well, there's no one answer, but you know the reason that Elon Musk is the largest is the is the richest person in the world, and he was the richest person in the world before the gas price spike, 
because Tesla was in such a high demand. The reason Tesla was in high, such high demand was because consumers six months ago, 12 months ago, 18 months ago, had already come to this realization about wanting EVs yeah. or before the gas spikes. And now that's just risen even more. And it's not just because Tesla is a neat car. It's because it was the best EV option. And investors believed that there was this massive growth in that segment, which has proven to be the case, and bid up the price of Tesla. You know, Tesla was only somewhere around 2% global market share when it became more valuable than the rest of the industry combined. So if you're an automotive manufacturer right now, do you want to be in the very large declining segment of the market? Or do you want to be in the very small, rapidly growing segment of the market? And every automotive maker right now is sort of saying, you know, I'm going to hedge my bets, but I'm going to build like crazy to, to where the consumer demand is, you know, to the point where GM has said that they will stop making gas burning cars by 2035, which is exactly the point in which we need everyone to stop making gas burning cars by 2035 because they last about 15 years. So if we don't stop selling new gas burning cars by 2035, we're not going to get to, you know, right, relatively right. none of them by 2050. And that's a whole shift in the industry and the mindset and the economics and the market dynamics that will get us to 8%. And we have to have that same kind of, we talk about this in the book, we have to have that same kind of shift in dynamics in terms of how we build cement, how we make cement, how we build steel, how we grow crops, what kind of crops do we eat? How do we generate electricity? How do we build the electric grid, you know, under the assumption that we're going to have to power all these electric vehicles and be able to uh, use, the, use and store sustainable energy. Well, if we start off this goal of zero emissions by 2050, the rest flows backwards. And that's how you have to do it. Otherwise, we're just sort of meandering along. And you talk about incentives. You know, Elon Musk forgets this now that, you know, he's become a libertarian. But if it weren't for the government loans, right, mm -hmm. that kept him floating, if it wasn't the decades of investment in battery research and, and advanced manufacturing, Tesla wouldn't exist, right? And if it wasn't for the consumer incentives to buy EVs, they wouldn't have had the initial lift that allowed them to invest in the factories that are building cars today that, you know, he's sells everyone he, he builds six months before he builds it, 12 months before he builds it. What a great world to be in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he does have 10 kids that he has to take care of. Yeah, you know, at this rate, he, he can he can take care of his 10 kids and the other, you know. Yeah, many more. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, uh, let me jump to sort of the first part of the, the book, the building blocks and the technologies. You know, there's, there's a lot of talk about AI and obviously and quantum. And I'm just, I'm just curious sort of what your hit parade of the, the emerging technologies. I was reading a bit about hydrogen the other day. You know, what do you see as, I mean, well, let me back up. So one of the things that I love about you is you're actually optimistic. Because a lot, a lot of the people I talk to are like, oh, God, the world is ending. Armageddon is coming. We're all screwed. But you have, a different, you have a different lens on this thing. And so within that, what are the levers that you see in the, in the building block part of this that are so, are so like really could change the game? I mean, AI, obviously, I guess. But what, what else? Well, I think all the things you just described are the fruits of this, of this incredible scientific platform that we've built, you know, on top of computing, communications, information, manufacturing technologies, whole range of different technologies, gives us a platform for creativity and ingenuity. And it's hard to single out either one because, you know, the old phrase, 
we always overestimate technology in the short term and underestimate it in the long term. And it's true for all of these things. And it's a messy process. But I'll give you an example. So over the last 20 years, the cost of genomic sequencing has, well, the speed has increased by a factor of million and the cost has decreased by a factor of million. Built a on million? This, a million, right? Oh my God. Built on the scientific platform of discovery that we have. And it's generating fruits in so many different ways, right? All the way from, you know, in the time that it usually takes to develop vaccines, we've developed many vaccines for COVID and we've inoculated, you know, we've put about 1.2 billion shots in arms across the world. Because in a series of two or three years, built on that scientific platform of discovery once we had the problem. And you have that, that kind of advancement happening in all these different sectors. We call them the laws of zero, seven sort of areas of technology where you're seeing this exponential increase in capability. And we call it laws of zeros. When you have that exponential increase in capability, you have this massive drop in costs. So you can apply this technology to whatever problem right, we face, and we face lots of problems. So you know, I think there are pluses and minuses of everything you just described. And the question is, how do we deploy that technology? You know, we can do a lot of AI. I mean, a lot of great discoveries are built on top of what we think of as AI, just essentially sophisticated computer algorithms, right? Or we can do a lot of damage with them, but they're going to get more and more powerful. So the challenges and opportunities enabled by that power is just going to get greater and greater. And I want to connect what you just said or what how you described all that with, um, there's a reference in your bio about, you know, the work that you do stress testing innovation. And it relates to a conversation I had, another uh, podcast interview with uh, this guy, Sharon Matthews, who is a UK and working on building a, I don't want to use the word platform, but I'll use it, a platform to enable technology innovators to put their innovation through the filter that he's built to determine the ethical, the downstream ethical potentialities, not, right. not guaranteed. So how do you think about that relative, not just to the basic question of ethics and technology, but the ramifications, you know, can humans get better at understanding the long-term or even the medium-term consequences of this stuff we're deploying? Yeah. Well, I think they, of course they can get better and I think they need to get better. And I think that, you know, engineers need to take responsibility, right, for thinking through the kinds of capabilities they're developing. Um, I think a lot of engineers do do that, but the impact is that much, you know, more and more and more. You know, um, a good friend of mine talks about a lot of the advanced technologies that we talk about in the book, and he says that in a lot of cases, they're nuclear weapons or Stone Age mines, right? Wait, say that again? Nuclear weapons for Stone Age mines. Oh, God. Because they have such large ramifications and, and the amplifying effect they have on our actions, it's tremendous, right? Uh, we, we talk a little bit about social media in the book, and we, well, we also talk about the, the future history of trust. You know, how can we build the safeguards into what we're doing as we're building them? And that's absolutely, absolutely critical. So I'm definitely not a, um, you know, uh, move fast and break things kind of guy. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that we have to take responsibility for the consequences of our ingenuity. But the other thing I think about is that not only do we not take enough responsibility for the unintended consequences of our ingenuity, we also don't take enough responsibility for the intended consequences. We don't think long enough. We don't think big enough mm. what we can do with these tools. And 
in this way, I'm the most hopeful. If we can look at the intersection from you know corporate purpose, governmental purpose, how you think about it, growth and society, the intersection of those three circles actually gives us the greatest opportunity for improvement that benefits everyone. And you can easily look at just two of those circles and fail, right? Because you actually need, especially in a market or in an economy like ours, you need to have all three work together. Well, and that begs, brings up for me in the book that I've been working on, I started out with this observer's examination of the history of innovation, (laughs) you know, so it's not this deeply researched tome or anything. It's just, you know, my thinking about innovation since, since the cave people first figured out how to, how to manage or use fire. And what, what I arrived at was it seems like the intention of much of the innovation since the beginning of innovation has been focused primarily on speed acceleration of task, acceleration of function or acceleration to outcome without call it more dimensional consideration of other maybe important outcomes. And I feel like even today, much of the technologies we revere or the innovations we revere are accelerators. And, and then, you know, and going faster, yielding greater convenience or greater ease seemingly is a positive outcome, but is, is that the only outcome, you know, and (laughs) yeah, I could even argue in some cases going faster is actually not better that we should actually slow the hell down. But so I just, another way of, I think saying what what you, yeah, yeah. I think that's really smart. And, um, you know, in a way, I suffer this, and perhaps you have this experience as well. If we stay too long in the corridors of business and growth, we think about speed and efficiency, um, and we think about sort of that kind of improvement. But there are a lot of people that are working on things that have long-term effects, long-term benefits. You know, there's an old saying that plumbers have saved a lot more lives than doctors over history, right? Because, <laughs> you know, the, the sanitation, uh, oh, yeah. sanitation is, is, is so important. And so I think that we just need to bring all those perspectives to the game. You know, there's a role for there's a role for faster, better, cheaper if it's focused on the right thing. There's a role for infrastructure and platforms for trust. And there's a role for, you know, for individuals to um, through their individual actions and choices collectively make a big difference. And and I want to come back to that in a second. Um, Do you think there is an a need for an accountability system. So, and, and that's not a, I'm not, that's not a leading question. I'm not sort of saying that there should be, I'm just curious as you think about, you know, you mentioned engineers and that engineers as, as one example um, need to, it would be great if more and more engineers contemplated uh, the multidimensional consequences of what they're, of what they're building uh, the challenge, of course, within that, if those engineers are operating within a commercial environment where the measure is productivity, profitability, revenue gain, what have you, you know, A, are they motivated to think more broadly and more dimensionally? And B, what entity, if any, will hold them accountable to that, to that task? Yeah. You know, <laughs> do you have a point of view on Oh, I think accountability and responsibility is always important. Um, I think that it starts with the individual. 
but then sort of there's escalating layers, you know, professional societies, regulating bodies, governmental um, groups. You know, we tell a story in the book about how in, in, the, uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, there was an incident where a uh, Russian mid-level officer uh, on monitoring their air defense systems got a warning for incoming ballistic missiles in the United States. We talked, yeah, yeah, yeah. And his job was to, as soon as he saw that, report back up. And he just said, this doesn't seem right. Um, and he took his life in his own hands by not immediately reporting it. And, and it was an error. They were geese, right? They were, sig- they were, they were detecting geese. And um, he probably saved the nuclear war, right? right? There, there are so, so, many, so many examples of individuals taking responsibility and doing the right thing even when the institutional norms uh, might have pulled them another way or didn't require it. And I think there's, you know, fundamentally, I have faith that the bulk of humanity works that way. And we just have, we need to both mobilize that and acknowledge that and, and, you know, work as, as well as we can towards the the right thing. I had, I was speaking in front of a a large industry conference um, just a few years ago and somebody in the audience said, and when I was talking about innovation and, and corporate responsibility, somebody in the audience said, what do I do if I'm working in an organization where clearly they just don't care? Um, where they're either, you know, the motives are wrong or they're, they're governed by short-term, uh, uh, short-term incentives that you were, you were talking about earlier, and they just don't care. And there's only one answer, leave. Yep. Right. Uh, and and we'll, we'll talk about this in a little bit because in the end, companies are made of individuals right. and companies depend on talent. And as an individual, if you say to yourself, look, I have choices, which, you know, we all do, especially today when everybody's, you know, ha- is, is there's, there's, there's a hunger for, for talent and talent is how one company beats another. You go to a company that's willing to do slightly better than the, than the next one. Yeah, I agree with that. That collectively, especially in a market or an economy, makes a big difference. Yeah. I totally agree. I mean, one of my expressions is an organization is nothing but a collection of human beings. Like this idea that a, a corporation exists beyond the people is like, well, no, even IP without the application by the people is of, of little value, you know? And yeah. that, you know, when I say that, I'm not, I'm not trying to be glib, but over the long term, that's what's going to make a difference. Yeah, uh, that that is really the only thing that's going to make a difference. So I want to wrap us up on this on this topic of the individual. Um, kind of two lenses on that. One is I try to end every show with a, a call to action for the individual, whoever the guest is, whatever we're talking about. Um. The, the other side of it is I think, I think you and I absolutely agree that this, this endeavor has to be as much bottom up as it is top down that we, you know, we can't get to the perfect future place relying on our governments to all of a sudden change their ways or, you know, do things differently or the calcified systems I mentioned to all of a sudden remake themselves. But, but so most specifically, what can what can the human do? What can the individual do that reads the book, that's motivated by the book, 
is there a is there a call to action? Are there specific tasks we can un- undertake? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, the most important thing for an individual to realize that he or she has agency, right? In a number of different ways, right? In, in one level, I mean, every organization from top to bottom is just an individual, you know, individuals. Uh, so the decisions that we make, you know, in our corporate organizational governmental roles uh, and what constraints we accept and how do we work, you know, where do we work, all that is really important. Um, but as an employee, I just, as I just described, you know, your talent, nobody, you know, your company does not want you to walk out the door, right? So your ability to exercise influence at whatever level um, is really important and just assume that you have agency, especially over time in the choices that you make. Uh, so as employees that, that, that we are as leaders, right? Um, I think that we are in a golden age where in every organization, we can find the intersection between purpose, growth, and society. We may have to look for it, and maybe in the short term, we just invest a little to prove those ideas. Uh, but that opportunity is there, and it is the best growth opportunity of the century for every organization. Do you think that golden age, I love that expression, the golden age, purpose, growth, and society, sort of a Venn diagram, like sweet spot. Is that a function? What is that a function of? Is that, a, is that just the the, 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 the evolution of the world? Is it all technology enabled? Is it a raised awareness on among the part of like, what are the dynamics? I don't want to derail this, but I'm really curious oh. to know what are the dynamics that, that are, are, are promulgating this golden age? It's, I think it's the intersection of powerful technologies that are getting powerful at an exponential rate and complex problems that need to be solved. Right, it's the intersection of the tools and the crises. Climate is the big, is, is the really, really big one, right? Uh, in the sense that we, this is a problem we have to solve. We're willing to pay trillions of dollars to solve it, and it causes a shift in almost every product category you can imagine, right? So that that product market shift is going to create growth opportunities on one hand and dying opportunities on the other. Right. right. Uh, so where are you going to go there? So it's really that. It's the laws of zero intersecting with our realization of, the, of these massive, you know, the, uh, uh, the UN calls them sustainable development goals. Yeah, the 17 right? SDGs. Yeah. Right, the massive problems we have. And the fact that collectively this world is very, very rich. You know, we've already seen the amount of money we can invest in problems or in wars, right, when we put our minds to it. And that money will be spent. The question is how. So I think that's why it's a golden opportunity. And, and the part of that that allows for the, that to happen, whether you think about governmental level or organization level, is that there are enough people, it was never everyone, there are enough people who are willing to be as consumers, as employees, as voters, as activists, willing to buy into and support right, uh, those better solutions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that really, I think I told you when we chatted a couple of weeks ago, I'm in the midst of starting this, I don't even know what it is, this thing called the human revolution, which is simply an entity designed to put a spotlight on the movement that's already happening. Like you are, you and, and your co-authors are revolutionaries that are contributing in your own way to 
call it activism, whatever, to say this this is the way we have to start. Yeah, moving, thinking, acting. Yeah, you know. Um, right. That's my right. my funny i don't know why i want to tell you this but i i, I do and m- maybe it's helpful for the audience i don't know so a couple of years ago i started writing this book that's kind of sort of about the same thing albeit a, a different approach um and you know i'm writing about climate and i'm writing about consumerism and i'm writing about you know zero you know zero carbon and i'm i'm, I'm writing about all this stuff and and then i start looking at myself like really looking at myself and looking at my behaviors. And I realize back to your agency comment, I have agency. I can make different choices. I don't have to be the way I have been for my entire life. And so I started doing little things, you know, so we started composting everything and we, I don't, I dropped plastic and a lot of this will sound climate related and it is, but the point is I've learned on the one hand, it's really hard to sacrifice, particularly around convenience. So, you know, Kate and I drive to Connecticut to see Bob. We got to remember the water bottle because if I don't remember my water bottle, we'll have to stop at a convenience store and buy a plastic bottle. And, you know, and that's kind of a pain in the ass. So on the one hand, it's a sacrifice, but on the other hand, it's not really hard at all. Right. Yes. <laughs> and you multiply that, you know, not really hard at all by 350 million people. And that adds up to a lot of water bottles, my friend. A lot of water bottles. <laughs> yeah. And actually in, in, in contemplating the human revolution and I, and by the way, because you are on the show, if you're okay with it, when we, the site launches, you will be featured as a revolutionary. <laughs> um, but um, that, that, uh, you know, a movement, I, I was researching what constitutes a movement and, and somebody defined it as 10% of the market. If 10% of the market is activated, you have a full-fledged movement. And so if the world is 7.8 billion people, we just need to motivate 780 million people to begin sure. to behave, act, choose differently, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's an achievable number. Yes. Right. Because 10% of the world population mm-hmm. is the biggest addressable space that any company can dream about. Right. Uh, so you create this opportunity, you know, um, it, it, it's 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 enormous, right? Ten percent of the population decides it's, it's going to start voting in a different way, changes the dynamics of the entire population. Seven percent of the people think you know decide they're going to work for one set of companies and not another, move live in one state or not another. I mean, yeah. it's the shift. It's the shift that makes a difference. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chunga, thank you so much for for being on the show. Thank you for the work. Um, not just the work of the book, like all of the work that you're doing towards the future. And I hope your kids are proud of you. <laughs> well, I wrote this book for them, so I hope they are as well. Have they read it? Because I can't get them to read my stuff, my kids to read my stuff. But have, you, have they read it? I assume they, they read actually, it. They actually have. Um, I actually dedicated this book to to my kids. And I wrote this book because of something my daughter said to me one day. We can tell you tell you that story another time but yes this no 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 no. if you don't mind telling it i think that's a great way to wrap wrap us up tell the story 
Oh, I came back from an industry conference uh, about four and a half years ago, and um, I was featured as a futurist. And, th- and not only was I featured as a futurist, they drew this big cartoon of me, you know, uh, flying a spaceship. And she looked at that <laughs> and she said, futurist, huh? Well, I hope you adults don't mess up my future. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there you, go. you know, um, we adults need to do a little work to not mess up our kids' future. So I thank your daughter and I thank you and uh, great to connect with you. And I look forward to a long and fruitful collaboration. And I want to share my stuff with you once it's ready for show. Absolutely. Um, and lastly, how can the, the audience obviously can, can, can find your books all on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, whatever. Uh, yes. Uh, all those places. And um, I'm easy to find online. Chunkamoy.com. Chunkamoy.com is Moy, M-U-I. So Chunkamoy. Again, th- Chunka, thank you so much for being on Insert Human. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening today. Wherever you are as a leader on your transformation journey, you'll find more helpful resources at chriscolbert.com. From more podcast episodes and my film talks from around the globe to my blog and books. And if you're a CEO or leader interested in getting my advice, you can reach me there too. Just head over to chriscolbert.com. Thanks for listening.